just on the inside, in the shadow there, yeah. that's all plastic. This is all little bits of plastic. You can see it? Yeah, sure, right? This is microplastic, tiny fragments of toys, bottles, and other bags broken apart by the sun and the waves, now brought in by the tide. 21st century flotsam and the fish mistake it for food. If we're thinking about what is sea level going to be like in 10 years, whether you're building a, a dike around your town or, um, or anticipating how far inland to move coastal cities in Florida, um, this glacier is a big piece of that question. We're climate change front and center tonight in South Florida, and one city that knows it could one day be underwater, now doing even more to get people's attention about this issue. Meanwhile, in the oceans, things are really heating up. A new report out of the U.S. has predicted that rises in sea levels could displace three times the quantity of coastal residents as previously thought. The ocean plays an important part in our lives. It factors into the food we eat, the climate, the ecosystem. Some people even live on the coastline overlooking its beautiful waters. But have we asked too much of the ocean? This mysterious entity that we can't fully comprehend yet is letting us know through rising temperatures, sea levels and impacts on wildlife. Join me, Lauren Bodica, as I speak to experts about the beauty and the mystery of the ocean we take for granted. This is MTS for National Science Week. My name is Richard Rayner, and I'm a professor at Monash University. And the area in which I work is mainly understanding the way that marine animals deal with challenges from their environment, which includes challenges that people create. For example, I do a lot of work with the penguins down at Phillip Island and, and understanding where they go to get their food, the time they spend fishing out in the waters around the island, coming back to feed their chicks and so on, and how that's affected by the foraging opportunities, which is to say that the environment around the nature park there is quite variable. Some years there's a lot of fish, some years not so much. And understanding why that happens and how the penguins respond is a really important way of understanding then how to best protect and manage them. And then I do similar work with um, sea turtles and with sharks. And kind of, so the work that I do is mainly focused on understanding their biology to use that information for better management and conservation, to protect species, protect their nesting areas in the case of sea turtles, understand what effects things like climate change have on them. And with the sharks, what impact fisheries have and when sharks are captured and released, as a lot of them are. What happens to them after that? How do they survive? What longer term effects are they? So a lot of that work, you know, of course, happens out in the field in Victoria, Queensland and uh, other parts of Australia, but also quite a lot in other parts of the world as well. That sounds amazing. It sounds like you have like one of the most amazing jobs. I've, <laughs> I've watched some videos as well of um, I went into your research site and took a look at some clips and it looked amazing what you get to do and the opportunity. Well, most of the time I get to sit in front of the computer. Well, now is not all that different from usual in that now I'm at home, but instead of being on campus, but I do do some field work. I spend a week on the Barrier Reef each year and a week in Borneo every year, which is actually also for teaching rather than research. So a lot of the field work that happens around the country, around the world, is mainly done by PhD students. I guess one of my first questions was, I mean, due to all the changes that are going on at the moment, it seems that climate change is quite sort of a ubiquitous word. And is there a sort of definition of what a healthy ocean should be? Describing a healthy ocean is actually yeah. a concept that's probably more difficult than you might think. And the reason for that is that the ocean is not just the same everywhere. So obviously we have warmer oceans, we have colder oceans. Some oceans um, are less salty than others. Some are shallow, some are deep. So it varies. Not only that, but you think of the changes that have happened through Earth's geological history. Mm -hmm. The ocean wasn't always the same. There's periods where it's been much, much warmer, periods where it's been much colder. The positions of all the continents have changed, so the currents have changed and so on. But if we think about the ocean today, 
I suppose the best definition to say an ocean is healthy is that it supports natural, healthy communities of living things. And generally speaking, that means that its temperature range is fairly stable, that it's not polluted, that it's well oxygenated. And these are all the sort of characteristics that are important for animals and plants to survive within the ocean. And as I said, it wasn't always that way. If you look back, okay, it's going back a couple of billion years, but the ocean was very, very different to now um, in things like its acidity and especially how much oxygen it contained. So the evolution of the tiny algae that carry on all the photosynthesis was the most significant event for then facilitating all this life in the ocean and, and later life on the land because those organisms produced the oxygen, initially entered the, the, the atmosphere, and then it started to sort of accumulate in the oceans as well. And that enabled other animals and plants to, to evolve. In the current day, things that measure an unhealthy ocean maybe are easy in some way to describe. Mm -hmm. Of course, oceans that are polluted is a big one through chemicals or plastics or others, or oceans that have been overfished where the natural life that should be present is no longer present, or oceans that become too warm, such as areas of the, that are where the Great Barrier Reef is found, where the, the animals and plants that live there can't tolerate the rapid increases in temperature that occur, and they either can't escape them or they can't tolerate them, and you have these big die-offs that occur. There might also be sort of human changes like changing coastlines, we change currents, we, we dam rivers, we modify environments so that oceans change and, and a lot of those then can, can become unhealthy as a result. But I think we all recognise an unhealthy ocean when we see it. That's maybe one way to look at it. I guess you're talking about all of like the changes in temperature and changes in the wildlife that live within the ocean and rely on the ocean as well? Is it a matter of consistency of these elements? Is I mean, it is inevitable change. So change is a natural thing, of course, and, and all environments change uh, rapidly through a, from season to season to season through a year, you know, in a fairly cyclical, predictable way. And all environments also change slowly over a long period of time. The only environment I can think of that basically never changes, at least not over the scale of millions of years, is the deep, deep sea. Because the deep, deep sea is so remote from the atmosphere, never sees the sun, so the temperature doesn't change during the course of the year, the productivity of the ocean doesn't change through the course of the year, and as a result, for the animals that live there, it's like always the same. And it actually brings sort of an unusual challenge to the animals that live there but because most animals you know time their breeding cycles to do with the seasons so we all know you know birds breed in spring or many birds breed in spring and salmon swim upstream at a certain time of year and so on but for the animals that live in the deep sea they don't have those sort of environmental cues mm. to coordinate themselves so reproduction in the deep sea is actually a really complicated difficult thing and finding a mate is a bit of a lottery so there's some very, very interesting adaptations that animals have. Let me give you one example, maybe. I'm sure you've seen Nemo, right? Everybody's oh, seen yeah, Finding Nemo. <laughs> Do you remember the anglerfish in Nemo, the mm. one with the little lure and the big teeth? See, uh, I see a light. A light? Yeah, over there. What is it? It's so pretty. I, I'm feeling happy. I want to touch it. Oh. Hey, come back. <laughs> come on back here. I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna get I'm you. I'm gonna swim with you. I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna be your best friend. Good feelings gone. There are quite a few species of anglerfish, and some of them look like that in the deep sea, and others live in shallow sea. But the anglerfish male doesn't look like the female. The female is the one that you saw in Finding Nemo with the big teeth. The anglerfish is a much, much, male one, is a much, much smaller, sort of fairly plain-looking fish. And the anglerfish male's goal is just to find a female. There's such a low abundance of life in the deep sea that's quite a challenge. And it may be that 99% of them never encounter a female. 
But when they do, they detect her presence through chemicals. They have very, very sensitive organs to detect the chemicals from the female. And they find the female and they bite her. But the female is like 20 times bigger than the male. And the male bites her and he actually becomes joined to her body, like fused. Their blood supplies connect. So she essentially supplies him and he becomes basically a parasite on the female anglerfish. But that way he's found a mate and she's found a mate. So they're kind of always together. And it's a really extreme form. It's called um, a sexual parasitism, but it's sort of one indication of what happens when you don't have variation because you've got no cues to time things. Uh, other than the deep sea, you know, no environments are totally stable. So change is a natural, normal thing. And not just the change during the course of a year, but the change over many years, many thousands or millions of years, change is, is always happening, of course. But currently, it's the rate of change that's the most significant and worrying factor. And the one, you know, everybody's aware of is, is the warming of the ocean. And that's one that's most easy to measure, which is why it's the most obvious. For example, Bass Strait around where these penguins live at Phillip Island and between Victoria and Tasmania, Bass Strait is warming much more quickly than just about any other region in the world. And, and it depends how and where you measure it, but it's warmed by several degrees over the last couple of decades or the last few decades which doesn't sound like very much, but it's quite significant because that water is not very warm to start with and the animals that live in it and the plants that live in it are, you know, adapted to a particular temperature. What we tend to see then is that animals can move, so they will move further north or further south where the water is warmer or cooler and to into that temperature that sort of suits them best. Plants can't move, so it's much more difficult for them but you see these disturbances in the ecosystem that result from, from changing temperatures. Those are more easy to detect than some of the sort of more subtle changes, like things such as the way in which currents move, for example. So the East Australian current, the one that Nemo wrote, basically, that comes down the eastern coast of Australia from Queensland down through New South Wales and so on. It's changeable as a current, but to measure exactly where and when and how quickly and so on that it moves, can be done with technology, but understanding how it's changing through time and why and what's normal variation versus what's changes caused by people is, is often difficult to, to do, at least to understand. When we see rapid changes, they're the ones that are most easy to detect and they're nearly always due to human activity of one kind or another. I did read some articles about corals that had developed some sort of way to adapt to the heat you know, what you see in every population of living things and between different species of living things is that some have maybe wider um, environmental preferences than others. Some are really specialists. They like things to be just so. And others are more variable, can tolerate a, a larger range of conditions. And a good example would be, you know, thinking of animals that you find everywhere versus animals that you find in much more limited ranges. So the ones that are limited ranges that, you know, have to live in a rainforest or have to live on the top of a mountain or by a coastline versus other species like kangaroos that have a really wide distribution. They can tolerate dry conditions to warm conditions. So therefore, when conditions change, those species that already have a fairly wide tolerance can cope with it better than those that have a much more narrow tolerance and, or, you know, that have less ability to adapt to different conditions or at least to tolerate different conditions. I've also spoken to a park ranger who works with Penguin Parade and she spoke about like this type of fish. Hello everyone, my name's Sue Graham. I'm a ranger and I work at the Phillip Island Nature Park. My job is an education and interpretation ranger and I work everywhere around the park, not just at penguins, but all over. And the Phillip Island Nature Park is probably well known for the little penguins. And if you come to the nature park to see the little penguins, it's got great viewing areas and it's uh, really well known for getting visitors to see our wildlife in a really well managed way that we don't interfere with the little penguins. They're not fed. They just come back and do their normal thing. There's some interesting things happening with warming of the waters that actually could actually help our little penguins because our little penguins 
eat small fish and those small fish become big fish very quickly uh, so that, you know, there's only a certain amount of time when pilchards are around and they're small enough that the penguins can eat them all year round. But those pilchards, instead of them going off to cooler waters and changing and moving through the seasons, because the warmer waters, but they might be more little pilchards. So actually not harming little penguins too much, except for if we get really hot areas and that kills all life form within that area of the ocean. That will definitely mm-hmm. affect. And those hot places are becoming more and more numerous throughout the world's oceans. The fish species around Victoria, around Phillip Island and elsewhere, um, are not. you don't see exactly the same thing at the same time every year. And as the conditions change, some will stick around a bit longer or maybe arrive a bit earlier or a bit later. And the penguins are really good at detecting those sort of cues. And they have what's called a plastic foraging behaviour. Plastic meaning flexible. And um, so they will shift what they eat to match what's available, which makes sense, of course. If they want to always eat pilchards and there are no pilchards around, well, that's not going to work out very well. So they need to switch to something else and they do that constantly. So they will modify their diet um, depending on the most abundant species or the most, most nutritious species and that's not always the same. So, so the work we do is to, to try to understand why those species change and how the penguins do that. But yeah, that's a good example of, of species that are able to respond in different ways to the environment. Is an increase or decrease in a marine species or species in general an indicator of climate change only or does it indicate some other aspects? We shouldn't always assume that just because things aren't the same as they were a couple of years ago means that there's a problem. Whenever, whenever there are changes in the composition, it can either be a natural change or it can be one that's caused because a system has become disturbed. There are many natural cycles. Uh, for example, in the Eastern Pacific Ocean, so that's off the coast of South America, Peru and Chile and so on, the countries in that area. There's a natural cycle where anchovy, um, which is a big, a really um, important fish in the oceans, and pilchards kind of live in opposite cycles. So when there's lots of anchovy, there's not many pilchards. And every sort of 10 years or something like that, with natural sort of climate cycles, uh, it flips. Then there's lots of pilchards and not so many anchovy. When one is high, the other is low, but that's a natural cycle. However, when someone comes along, when people come and fish out all of one species, then the others maybe will increase in number, but then that cycle is not a natural one. The problem we can find in the oceans is very often that sort of natural balance takes a long time to re-establish, um, if it re-establishes at all. And we shouldn't always expect everything will be the same. So when it's not the same, doesn't mean we immediately have to be alarmed, but we have to try and understand whether that's natural process or not. One of the great things about um, Phillip Island Nature Park's Little Penguins is it's really got a fantastic story. Back in 1980s, there used to be uh, 10 colonies of penguins around Phillip Island, and this was the last one. There was only one left. And the researchers of the time, they started uh, studying penguins, and they noticed a trend in that study that the penguin numbers were going down and if they projected those numbers to the year 2000 this is back in 1980s the mid 80s that we'd have no penguins the year before 2000 so the government listened because it was back then it was a great tourist attraction so what they did was they said what can we do to help with and the researchers said well we have a feral animal we have a fox The fox was introduced by European settlers. Um, It wasn't here in Australia and they brought it here to Phillip Island because they knew that on an island it couldn't escape and they could always come to hunt for Mm -hmm. the the fox and there was lots of food for the foxes. 
So um, by eradicating the foxes, we've been fox free now for quite a while. It has helped with our penguin numbers. So that's the first amazing bonus that happened with our, our little penguins. But then we also started buying back people's property that lived up in the Summerland estate, which is the colony, where the, right on the colony. So they noticed that the, um, by buying back people's land and houses, by the end, the penguins weren't just confined to the edge of the road. They started to come back and recolonize the areas that houses were. So this has never happened anywhere else in the world where we spent so much money for one bird species to give back land and environments for habitats for wildlife. And uh, so we've got lots of penguins today. There's over 32,000 adult breeding penguins. We have a bird here called the short-tailed shearwater and it flies from here. It breeds and it has a chick and then it flies all the way up to the northern, um, uh, of, north of uh, the world, northern of the world, <laughs> Aleutian Islands up the, the top of the world. And they, um, they're pretty much like the canary of the ocean. You know, what, what they find because they've, they're travelling from the Southern Ocean and they go down to Antarctica waters and they go up to the Aleutian Islands up in their frozen waters from one side of the earth to the other eating. They're telling us every bird pretty much has plastic in its gut. Mm. So we have to change. We have to do something pretty serious about protection and it's something that individuals can do like I can say oh, I'm a ranger at Phillip Island nature parks and you know looking after wildlife but everybody has to be on board thinking about the ways in which we change the environment one that everybody's aware is of is climate change you know as we said that's it's easy to measure because you can just go and put a thermometer in the ocean basically and and around the world there are thermometers in the ocean that are measuring temperature, but they're measuring a lot of other different things as well. And we collect that information by satellite. And our, our understanding now is much, much better than it was even 20 or 30 years ago. But there are others that are really, and so that's the indicator of what's happening with a warming climate. But there are others that are also really significant. And one really important one, that's a relatively recent problem, is the introduction of species invasive species around the world and i say it's recent because you know thinking about human history we've only been able to travel widely across the oceans in the relatively recent past you know i know that there were societies a thousand years ago that that could do it but it was pretty difficult mm -hmm. and of course aboriginals came to australia a long long time ago but they didn't have to swim to get here they would have walked across during one of these times when uh, sea levels were lower because there was lots of ice that froze all the water and sea levels dropped. So they walked across from New Guinea and elsewhere. But when we have modern shipping, it's easy for, for invasive species to be transported from one part of the world to another one. And they're, where they're not naturally found, they can have really big and significant effects. The Pacific Sea Star around Melbourne is one of them. They get transported in the water that's carried inside ships. And they're not allowed to do it anymore, but in the past, the ships used to discharge that water at the port when they came to Melbourne or anywhere else, and the sea stars got introduced that way. And they can destroy areas of, of reef and natural habitats and so on where they're not naturally found. So that's one good example. And others include things like the pollution that we cause from chemicals, from agricultural runoff, and this affects places like the Barrier Reef. Because we use a lot of chemicals for farming, it increases the productivity. But then they run off the land, they enter the rivers, and the rivers carry it out into the oceans. So I know that um, there's been a bit of but sort of media hype around polar bears, for example, like being extinct perhaps by 2050, or there being less, like a dramatically even compared to now, a lesser amount of polar bears. That's not really like a natural uh, cycle. That is human interference perhaps okay now that, that's a really good example lauren because the position and the size of the ice sheets on which polar bears live are not always the same and they get bigger and they get smaller 
but over long, long-term cycles, thousands of years or many thousands of years. And the earth goes through natural cycles. It's all to do, it's a really interesting, you can look up on Wikipedia and elsewhere about cycles to do with the earth's orbit. Sometimes we're closer to the sun, sometimes we're further away. Our angle changes and all those things affect how much solar heating the earth gets. And in turn, that changes how much ice is present. There have been times where there was more ice and times when there was less ice during the period in which polar bears have been around. And they have coped with those changes because the changes happen very slowly over thousands of years in many cases. So that as the ice, say, has contracted, well, slowly over time, the polar bears have changed their environment, maybe become, maybe become a bit less abundant. They might change their diet, but they have lots of time to get adjusted. Uh, when it happens really quickly, as it is now, there's no time to adapt and there's no time for polar bears to change. So you end up with this sort of drastic situation where potentially, yes, they'll be extinct because there's no refuge for them and the ice may disappear completely. And, and that's not been the case for a long, long time in, in Earth's history. Another good example actually is, um, is sea turtles. So you know sea turtles nest on tropical beaches around the world. And in periods where the Earth's been colder and the water has been colder and the ice has come further down, closer to the equator or from the southern hemisphere, further up and closer to the equator, there's been less available area for the turtles to nest. But over a period of thousands and millions of years, they've slowly contracted their range and nested on those areas. And when the ice melts and there's more area available, well, then they spread into it. So they will go through these natural sort of expansion and contraction over time. But again, it happens really slowly. So when things happen really quickly, where when it's warmer and beaches are too hot for turtles' eggs to develop, um, so the eggs die in the sand, then the turtles don't have time to sort of shift their ranges away from those beaches towards cooler beaches. And that's really the key part of the problem is the speed with which things happen. A lot of those preventative measures are to do with lessening the impact of what humans have and their, their interaction with their surroundings, lessening that impact. From our researchers, from having people come to, to a tourist destination, we can have researchers that can study little penguins. Well, one researcher was going out into the colony and um, fortnightly looking at um, a breeding pair and they had two chicks. They had successfully um, hatched their chicks and they were a couple of weeks old and she was very excited to go back the next fortnight. And when she went back the next fortnight, it was a bit of a sad, this is a bit of a sad story. She found two dead chicks, but being a researcher, she was going, but this is an unusual thing to find. She wanted to know that the reason for their death. They um, discovered that inside their gut was little bits of a chip packet that had started to splinter, I guess, in slithers. Mm -hmm. That had filled their whole stomach content. So they were quite round. They were like a little fluffy tennis ball. Mm -hmm. they, they were full, but they were full with plastic. This is a major problem. These two chicks were fed mum and dad regurgitate food from the ocean instead of regurgitating fish a uh, fish mush that they could digest they digested plastic and it couldn't poop through and it was stuck and therefore they couldn't get any more energy couldn't get anything more in so they they passed away who's responsible for it yeah, it's us so you know we do have a responsibility to that ocean something like a chip packet drops on land that can be blown into creeks and rivers and creeks and rivers all flow into our oceans. It doesn't have to be dropped by somebody using the beach. So it's all of our responsibility. Something that we're finding here at the nature parks, we have a volunteer program where you go out and collect um, marine debris. So once a month, a core of volunteers get together and we go out collecting. And uh, the idea is not to just collect things that we find on the beach that shouldn't be in our oceans that are getting washed up, but it's to report what we're finding and then to make a difference, to try and change businesses, to change people's mindsets, to reduce the amount of plastic that we purchase in the first place, to make sure that 
we understand that when we throw it away, it doesn't go away. It just breaks down into smaller particles and our animals and wildlife can actually eat that. And then that can make them either die or actually plastics are like a magnet that actually if we have our chemicals from our land that flow into the oceans, that's a magnet to those plastics. And then animals that ingest it like a turtle or whale or whatever is ingesting it, they've got the toxins from the plastic as well as the toxins that are attracted to the plastic. It's called bioaccumulation when little tiny things in the food chain have to eat 10 little tiny particles. Now, if I wash this jacket that I'm wearing, I don't know whether you can see today, it's mm. a, a pile jacket. Millions of fibres going into from my washing machine out through the drain and into the ocean because there's no filter that can filter that. And then they eat 10 of these little fibres, but then the next fishy that comes along has to eat 10 little small ones. So now it's got 10 times that amount in that little fish but the next fish has to eat 10 of those. So then that's got a hundred times, you know, it goes up the food chain and guess who's at the top? We are. So what can we do? Whoa, I brought my bottle along to show you. Something we can all do is to make sure that we reduce that amount of plastic. Is it more dependent on helping the environment adapt quicker or is it more down to us and slowing down our lifestyles? We have to do both things at once. There's no point, let's say, with sea turtle nests. You can put shade over them or you can water the nest or you can do something to make the sand cooler. There's no point doing that if you don't address the root problem, which is why are those beaches getting hotter to start with. Likewise, there's no point going out trying to catch polar bears and, you know, put them in some sort of captive situation and feed them and try to keep them alive if you to, to, to subsequently release if you don't at the same time address the problem of why is their habitat disappearing. You can deal with the immediate problem, like the crisis, by the sort of intervention that I was talking about with watering the sea turtle nest or relocating animals or providing them additional food or something similar. So you can deal with the crisis that way, but unless you deal with the real sort of basic cause of it, well, then the the crisis is not going to get any better. Yeah, I think that's something for everyone to remember when they watch one of those amazing episodes of David Attenborough. To remember that, I know a lot of people who go, why why doesn't someone feed them or help them? And that is is the reason. So that's something to remember. You know, what gets the high profile, what gets the media coverage is that sort of crisis management because the other stuff to deal with the longer-term problem is much more difficult, doesn't make as good TV, it's mm. more expensive. It's the sort of thing that, you know, it might take decades to achieve. Well, it's, I think it's easy for people to feel a bit helpless because you can sort of say, well, it's such a big problem. You know, what can I do on my own? And the simplest answer to that is if lots of people are doing something, then whilst your own individual contribution is small but is the best you can do, collectively it makes a big difference. Our individual behaviour with the choices we make, of the types of products we buy, what we do with our time to volunteer and help demand of our governments for the ways that they should behave and how they should spend money, all collectively can have a big effect. Decisions we make about what food we buy, for example, whether we buy, I mean, if we're talking about the oceans, then we're going, we may be talking about fish, but whether we buy fish that appear to be fished sustainably versus those that aren't that can make a big difference or the impact that the fishery has. For a long time, there was a big accidental capture of dolphins when they fished for tuna. A lot of people didn't know, but it was the way in which the tuna was being fished and they would accidentally catch and kill a lot of dolphins. And it took quite a while before people really became aware of it, but they didn't like it, obviously. There became a lot of pressure on the, on the tuna uh, retailers to stop that practice, and they did. So they required the, uh, the companies that sold the tuna to, the, to them, they required them to change their practices so they weren't catching dolphins anymore. The tins of tuna used to have the label on, say, dolphin-safe tuna. But I think now it's just the expectation. I don't think it actually appears on the can anymore because everyone says, yeah, of course the, dolphin, the tuna is dolphin-free, mm. you know. And that's a really good example where it was consumer pressure, where people say, well, if you are catching and killing dolphins, I don't want to buy your tuna. We see the same sorts of things now the focus with the supermarkets on not 
putting everything in plastic bags and or selling the plastic junk that breaks too quickly and easily and so on. So you might not feel that individually you can do quite very much, but collectively we can. That fibre pile top that I'm wearing and that you're wearing as well, these can't go into the compost bin because they're plastic. We'll do damage. The leaching of the chemicals that, to make it starts off its life in what we call a noodle, but it's made from gas and petroleum products. And these little noodles, they're found, unfortunately, along our shoreline on a high tide. You can often see these little round balls. And so next time you're down at the beach, have a look and see if you can see a noodle. We have a great noodle hunt um, and try and pick those up because our wildlife eat them. Because there's a lot of these items out there and I was just thinking there's got to be some sort of um, way of getting rid of them or using them for a different purpose. You're onto something, Lauren. And so maybe your students are onto something. This might be some great challenge for them because there is uh, this problem at the moment. When, when I go to wash this article in my washing machine, I've, got a, I've put it into a sack, but I know the fibres are going through the sack itself. Mm. I'd love to hear some ideas from everybody out there that's listening um, what they could do because that could be that would be great um i'd love to see some sort of uh engineering design projects where someone kind of creates like a machine that enables the items of clothing to be washed without it leaking into the ocean or is able to break these items of clothing down without impacting the ocean that would be that would be quite a feat i have to say You must have some great stories from your work as being a park ranger. Oh, there's too many. (laughs) I'll pick one. Uh, We have to do training. So we have to pick up penguins. Uh, There could be an oil spill or um, there could be an injured penguin. So we have to learn how to pick up the penguins in the correct way so that we don't injure them or they don't injure us. But uh, they injured me. (laughs) They're very feisty little devils. And they grabbed hold of my skin. They've got a hook hook to beak and they grabbed hold of my skin and just twisted at the same time. It was like, ah, this hurts. (laughs) You're so adorable that this hurts. (laughs) They are the most adorable thing. And people say, oh, I'd love to take one home. Uh Uh-uh, no, no, no. They're protected by Australian law, so we can't pick them up. Um, But, yeah, they are feisty little ones. I was more, I was curious about sort of the relationship with the ocean that these animals had. Um, I mean, these, these creatures spend a lot of time in the water, don't they? The only reason why a penguin needs to come out on land is to breed and to molt their feathers. And the molting takes about three weeks, 17 days. The chicks, they, they're not mature for a couple of years, sexually mature, and they can stay out at sea until they go into the malt. So they can be on the, the ocean for, you know, six months mm, before wow. they come back to land. They actually don't fly, our penguins here at Phillip Island Nature Parks. They uh, swim very, very fast. They're built like a torpedo so that they can dive. They hold their breath underwater. They Longest is at um, 1 minute 56 that we've recorded, so just under two minutes of holding their breath. It's what happens out at sea that we really don't know that much about. So putting on little trackers onto them to see what they do, um, we've then found that a little penguin sees the fish above and so dives down below the prey. That's why they've got that beautiful blue feather on their back. So the prey can't see them underneath the water. Mm. And then they stop swimming and they, they're like, because they're a neutral buoyancy, they come up like very fast and they sort of swim as well and they can cr- capture their prey before their prey even know. But the little chicks, 
no one actually takes the chicks, no parent takes their chicks out, or this is what researchers think. The majority of the little chicks aren't taught how to hunt and fish. And that they see the, the fish here and they go under and they go, oh, there's some fish, and they start swimming towards it and the, the counter, the white belly, is easily seen and the fish swim away. So all that energy. Mm. So we're finding out lots and lots of information. So these are um, amazing, the little trackers that we put on them. So we started off, they're quite large and they've shrunk down and apparently they can put on trackers onto bees. I guess what is the prognosis maybe, do you think, uh, of the ocean you know, sustaining itself alongside us impacting it. I guess how much longer can that relationship last if we base it off like current, what our current attitudes are? Well, that is a really, really tough question. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. The thing is that different changes that are happening in the ocean are happening at different speeds. It's difficult to say, you know, which is the one that's going to kind of tip the balance. We do know, for example, that fisheries around the world, like commercial fisheries, are fishing really intensively in certain areas and certain oceans are getting fished out. There's almost nothing left. And then they will move to a different region or type target a different type of fish and probably the day in which most of the commercial sustainable fisheries in the world continue. It's probably not far off before most of them have collapsed. And so the solution to that will need to be a technological one. We can't suddenly make new fish, but maybe we can fish in a way that has less impact. We can rely more on aquaculture, for example. But the time frame to say how long that's going to take to happen is really difficult. I spoke to Dr. Paul Harrison, marine biologist, chief scientist and co-founder of Mainstream Aquaculture based here in Victoria, about the sustainability of aquaculture and its future prospects within the industry. Uh, we launched mainstream aquaculture in 2001, so we've been operating for about 19 years, and we grow barramundi, which is an Australian fish, but a fish that's enjoyed all over the world. Now we, we export our own barramundi to 24 different countries. Could you give a definition of what aquaculture is? So, yeah, aquaculture is, is effectively agriculture in the water. So anything that's grown in water, most of what's grown is fish, but it includes shellfish like crabs and lobsters, uh, sorry, crustaceans and shellfish. So crabs and lobsters and things like oysters and, and mussels and even things like algae. So anything that's grown or farmed in the ocean, either saltwater or freshwater, is aquaculture. What is the sort of aim behind mainstream aquaculture where you work? Well, our big vision aim is to feed the world with really high quality protein, high quality fish, and to, to supply that fish in a in a sustainable and environmentally conscious way. Our farms are designed to try and produce fish in a, an efficient way as possible. How does one farm fish the way you guys do? Yeah, well, I, mean, I think like any other farming, the, the way the way fish farming is done is is you need to create an environment that is an optimal environment for whatever animal you want to farm. It can be a little bit more difficult in, in water sometimes than, than land, um, but we need to create an environment, a water environment that the fish are happy in that can grow and thrive in. That's the primary thing. And then the, the physical part of farming is we're actually then keeping the fish contained in either cages or ponds or, or tanks, feeding those fish until they grow up to market size and then preparing them for the market. So really the whole process, you, you need a supply of babies, of juvenile fish, so we have our own hatchery and we produce our own fish. You either need to do that or source the fish from somewhere and then grow them up to the appropriate market size, keep them happy through their whole life and grow them quickly uh, and then prepare for market. So what are the benefits to this kind of fishery? People need, people need to eat protein um, and people will eat fish. Aquaculture has now taken over wild fishery in terms of the total volume of fish that it provides to, to people to eat, which is really uh, encouraging. Our population continues to increase. The demand for protein, the demand for fish continues to increase. And if we were only catching our fish, much like if we were trying to catch land animals to eat, it's not sustainable. It can't last. 
So really one of the main advantages is that it takes a lot of pressure off the wild fisheries, allows us to provide fish as food without necessarily having to go to the oceans to, to fish. And there'll always be a, a market or a, a desire for ocean caught fish, but the real advantage is we're not going to be reliant on that. So we don't have to strip the oceans bare to get our our fish, basically. Yeah, definitely. And that's one of the reasons I got into it personally. I just, I just like fish in general. So running a business where we're growing fish made sense. But yeah, also just conscious of, of I guess, issues in the world around food in general and food security, um, but then also the impact on, on our oceans and our, our freshwater fisheries. How do you create an environment that mirrors the usual environment these fish would be found in? We really use a lot of pumps and aeration tools and flow tools. So we there's, there's different ways we farm the fish. We don't do any sea cage farming ourselves directly, but we have clients that do. Our main direct forms of farming are in outdoor earthen ponds where we draw water from a, from a creek or a river into the ponds or uh, in indoor and fully controlled quarantine tank-based systems. So in either of those production formats, what we're trying to do is control the environmental parameters that the fish really need to optimise their growth. We control the temperature so it's a perfect temperature year-round for the fish. We control the oxygen level, we control the pH levels. If you think about it as a very large fish tank, the, the perfect environment for the fish to thrive in. And so what we need to do for that is just manipulate that environment, either pumping water and heating. We also use filters to clean the water so we don't have to use as much water in the process. So we can take any fish waste out and then reuse either part or all of that water. What are some of the challenges of maintaining aquaculture as a sustainable practice? One of the challenges is still that, like any industry, it requires energy. We were just talking about the, the need to use pumps and filter processes and so forth. So we still need to use energy where this aquaculture is very efficient when compared to even other agriculture, land-based practices in particular. But where we live in a world where we need to keep reducing our, our carbon footprint and our reliance on energy, that's probably one of the, the biggest challenges, I think, is just that still reliance on energy to, to farm the fish. What are the future technological possibilities for aquaculture? There's a lot at the market end in terms of technology. People often will avoid eating fish because it's sometimes hard to prepare and hard to store. Now we're in a position where faced with, with COVID, people are stockpiling food and, and so forth. And fish is not often the type of food you stockpile. One of the areas of technology that's really important is that we are able to provide fish to the consumer in prepared and processed and packaged forms that first of all allows storage and transport to be um, easier but also allows the fish to be more accessible and easy to cook. On the farm I think the main area of technology is really in in automation. The farms as they get bigger and bigger you, you're covering a lot of area so things like the automatic feeding equipment which is is used um, is rapidly getting better automatic probes and responses. So we were talking about keeping temperature and oxygen um, at a steady state. We use, here in Melbourne, we use probes which are recording those parameters 24-7. And a lot of the farms are now starting to connect so those parameters to their feeding system so you can control the feeding but stop it if the environment's not perfect. Um, cameras that are, are looking at those fish. So really just optimising the farming operation with better technology on the farm. When they come and visit us, we, we usually find people are, are fascinated um, with the, the technology and the, uh, the business itself, but also, you know, it's quite fascinating to see in our hatchery some very large fish that are the size of large dogs, you know, and <laughs> or small farm animals. They're, they're, they're really quite impressive down to the, and the, the eggs and larvae that we produce. So the whole life cycle, the biological life cycle is very interesting. Do you know what kind of impact this might be having on, for example, wild barramundi numbers? Yeah, it's probably a, a little bit early for us to, to get numbers. If we move it out worldwide, we, there's, there's very good direct evidence that with more aquaculture and less reliance on wild fisheries, wild fisheries are recovering. And then what we do know is that the wild barramundi industry is effectively now a quarter of the size of what it used to be, say, 10 years ago. And mainly the reason for that is that farming has gotten more sophisticated. Um, the farming product is better in terms of being more consistent to, to market. So the wild product is still exceptional, but the, the, the farm product has caught up and in some cases, depending on who you ask, has, has overtaken that. So it's provided that option. And as a result, the industry has gone down. So by extension, you would expect that the Barren Monday wild stocks are, are doing better now because they're not being fished. Is aquaculture a really good 
alternative to sort of fishing out in the wild because these natural, these wild fish numbers will, I guess, start growing again. Maybe what they once were a few years ago or a decade ago at some point in time, from a marine biologist's perspective, is aquaculture a good strategy? There's a lot that we uh, need to do to make the oceans better. Population growth has gone far enough along that we may never get back to what it was when there were not many people around, but the ocean can still be a great and healthy environment. Yeah, there's a lot we need to do in terms of stopping things going into the ocean that shouldn't be there. And in the short term, the more aquaculture that we're able to do, um, the less impact we're going to have on wild fisheries, and therefore wild fisheries will recover. The less, less reliance we have on, on particularly fisheries that focus around seabeds and areas where fish are reproducing, that's really important because the most important place of the ocean to ensure that our fish stocks recover are the places where fish breed. And usually that's fairly close to the to the shores and often those areas are quite decimated by, by fishing practices. Anything we do there in terms of aquaculture will help. Aquaculture obviously has its own challenges and we need to do it responsibly and, and well. For instance, we need fish and fish meal to feed the fish at the farm. So that has to come uh, in many cases from the ocean as well. So it needs to be done responsibly. But I think one of the interesting facts is you think about aquaculture in water, so you're using a lot of water. We actually use about one-fiftieth of the amount of water to generate a kilogram of protein compared to um, land-based farming of cattle. So cattle farming versus aquaculture, at least the, the way we practice it here in Melbourne with the indoor water recirculating systems, we're using about 150th of the amount of water. We also use considerably less space and considerably less energy. So from a efficiency point of view, aquaculture is a really, really efficient way to, to generate protein because we're far less reliant on those inputs of water and, and power and space. I wonder if cattle and land agriculture can sort of take some notes or be inspired by how aquaculture does its own farming. I think so. They're, they're, they're mm. obviously fundamentally different, but with respect to water use, the technology that comes out of aquaculture is often the water recovery technology, so how you can use water two or three or, or four times before discarding it. Mm. Um, so that's probably one of the technology areas where aquaculture could provide something to, to those farms and vice versa. There's always technology coming either way that I think all farmers can learn from. We have the technological capacity and sort of the cultural capacity to make a lot of changes. So if we change things, then the outcome will be different. We can slow things down. As you identified, um, it's a really, really difficult one. It's, you know, how long have we got, so to speak? We don't know. If you're filling up a hole, you know how long it's going to take to fill it up. But here, you know, we're not dealing with a hole. It's a, it's a dynamic system and there's so many different things operating. But I want to, yeah, thank you again for contributing. It was really informative and really interesting. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks. See you. See ya. Bye. Okay, thanks. See you, Lauren. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to our National Science Week podcast with MTS. So there you have it. We have the ability to remedy the problems that humans have put upon the ocean. I agree with Richard Rayner and Sue Graham. The problem can be solved with our technological capabilities. So here's a question to you. What technological ideas do you have? What do you know that's currently happening in your society that's working to remedy the problems that we spoke about in this episode? To answer these questions or to contribute to the discussion, email us at info at monashtechschool.vic.edu.au.